0: We have over 30 years of experience in the industry and are owners of the well-established design-build remodeling company, Black Dog Builders, in Salem and Nashua, New Hampshire.
1: We're sitting down with industry professionals to tap into their experiences and insights so we can equip you with the tools you need to make your own project a success. So, welcome back. This is another episode of Renovation Made Right. I am Brenda Bryan.
0: And I'm David Bryan. Glad to be here.
1: And we are so excited to be back. We've been on a long hiatus. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful, off.
0: beautiful fall day here Beautiful in fall
1: day. Finally, the rain has stopped, at least during the week. And it'll <laughs> rain on the weekend. Exactly. And ruin everybody's, everybody's time. But we are happy today to be back. Right. Um, we have some listener questions to go through. And first of all, um, just a reminder. Thank you for liking the podcast. Um, when you get a chance, share it with people who are thinking about renovating so that they can get this information. We're really appreciative of that. And we're just going to jump into our listener questions.
0: All right, let's do it.
1: So I will read the first one and we'll see who, who gets to answer. So dear Dave and Brenda, I'm a longtime listener of the Renovation Made Right podcast. I've gained a ton of knowledge from your expert advice. It's made me feel better about working on projects around the house. Well, thank you. My wife and I are planning an open concept renovation for our 1970s ranch home in Austin, Texas. We're excited, but a little overwhelmed. By the way, can I say how much I like ranches? I really enjoy ranches. Just say it. I, I, I think they're awesome and underrated houses. My question is, what are the essential things to consider when taking down a load-bearing wall? I know it's not something to take lightly, and I'd rather be over-prepared than under. Looking forward to your insights. Best regards, William.
0: So why don't I take that one? Yeah, I think that's a good one for you. <laughs> all right. So, William, first of all, thanks for the question. Appreciate it very much. Secondly, you're actually in pretty in a pretty unique situation, a good situation, having a match, right? Because um, we take down load-bearing walls in our company all the time. Probably weekly, we take down load-bearing walls. But many, many, many of our houses are story or story and a half, meaning like a cape-style home, where the second floor creates an additional uh, floor load, right? So in your case, you have a roof load, and in more specifically, in your case, in many cases, you have a very minor roof load. So if it's an interior middle partition, the interior middle partition in your home is really just picking up the weight of your ceiling plus whatever, if you if you in fact have an attic, uh, plus whatever attic load you have, right? And so the attics are designed for potential storage load. Uh, so the long and the, st- the short of it is. Um, a ranch is probably the easiest, lowest risk uh, kind of s- construction style to be able to take a part, a bearing partition out because what you're really picking up for weight is pretty insignificant. It's it's ceiling load. Now I don't mean to suggest that does not mean that you don't need a, a, an engineered or properly sized beam. Yeah, you, but sti- you can
1: just willy nilly take out. Walls. Yeah, no, you, you still
0: cannot. you still do, but but you know it's it's far and away uh, the the sort of least risk because you're dealing with the least amount. If you were you know, dealing with a two story structure and you know, you've got floor loads and maybe a finished attic, you've got really potentially three floor, two floor loads above you plus uh, you know, some uh, uh, tributary loads potentially from a roof, depending on how the roof is framed, you've got more to worry about. In your case, not a lot to worry about. So what that really looks like is um, is building uh, a relatively light, wage, light gauge, pardon me, temporary wall on either side of the location that you're thinking about taking out the wall uh, and you build the wall about the, the two walls about two feet back. So it gives you room to work. but essentially that means that when you're going to take out the section of the wall you're taking out, you've got these temporary walls that are going to hold it in place. And it's okay for those walls just to be up against the sheetrock and sitting on your floor. That'll get the job done, right? If you wanted to ensure you didn't damage the sheetrock, you could put a piece of scrap park carpet between the top of the wall and your sheetrock uh, and you know and and make that you know manage that accordingly. Now, the time comes for the beam, you can actually go to your local lumber yard and your local lumberyard actually has the software to size the beam based on your situation. They'll ask you some questions, maybe might ask you for a sketch or a drawing. And they can actually size if you need an engineered beam, meaning uh, sort of man-made lumber, like an LVL, they call them, or... Uh, or
1: Stands for what? What does LVL
0: stand for? Uh, laminated veneer lumber, um, and that's a little like Kleenex. It's a little bit of a brand name, but at the end of the day, it's an engineered beam, and they make a lot of different styles of engineered beam. Um, but uh, lumberyards have software that can specifically call out uh, the size of the beam and uh, based on your span, meaning basically if you're going to take out six feet of bearing wall or eight feet of bearing wall or 20 feet of bearing wall that changes the beam size, right? And that beam also has to post down, what they call post down on either side. And uh, so if you put in a 10-foot beam, at each end of that 10-foot beam, there has to be a post that transfers that weight down to the foundation. Now, if you're in Texas, because I've got family in Texas, I know that there are very few basements in Texas, which probably means that you're, you're on a slab. slab, right? And if you're on a slab, that's fine. It's not a problem. But uh, and you, you not only are you on a slab, the odds are pretty good you're on a slab and they poured what's called a strip footing. So they probably poured underneath your bearing wall. They already may have poured a thickened section of that floor, that floor or they may have poured a footing under the floor. So you may be in good shape actually to put your post right where it is, but you should actually use um, a hammer drill or a masonry drill to drill through your floor. And get a sense making sure that you think you're clear of, of pipes and things like that which you would have under your slab in your ranch right uh, be mindful that you're not you know expecting that you're an immediate area for that but you long and short of it is you want to drill through and get a sense how deep is my sl- how is do, am i sitting on top of a footing in which case i could drill down you know six inches and not have the drill break through and then i know i've got more concrete Or maybe you drill, and after three inches, the drill goes right through into the sand or the dirt, and now you know, okay, you only have your slab there, right? So if that's the case, you do have to cut your slab out and put in a structural footing under that. But when I say structural footing, it's not a big deal. It's You're basically going to dig out the dirt, and let's say you put in a a two-foot by two-foot footing, uh, and that's a square hole, essentially, and it's a foot deep. So you're going to Cut the concrete out. You're going to dig down a foot, maybe in a square configuration, and pour a new foot-thick uh, amount of concrete that will ultimately be where your post lands. And I know this is sounding a little complex. It's not. It's a it relatively it thin complex. thing, right? If you have some skills and you're ambitious enough to do it, um, it can all work out. So bottom line, get your header sized your, or your beam sized. And when they size it, by the way, they'll typically give you trade-offs or options, right? So you can have... Um, multiple pieces of, of engineered lumber that you can bolt together and uh, to get a wider beam, or you can have a fewer number of pieces and those pieces are deeper, right? So you could have a 12-inch deep beam or an 8-inch deep beam or a 6-inch deep beam, and it, depending on A, what they determine the weight to be, this, it's picking up, and B, the length of span. So if you don't want your beam to stick down, uh, into the, the, the room any further than it has to, then you can, uh, you, you can get a wider beam. That's not quite so deep, but it'll be wider. You'll have more pieces that you have to assemble. Or if you don't care about that and you've got plenty of headroom, um, then you can put in a deeper beam and, uh, and you only might need a two ply, meaning two pieces of engineered lumber. So there's trade-offs in both directions. And the only other variation that gets a little more complex that you might want to think about and, um, uh, and consider is if you don't want a beam at all. Let's say you want that completely smooth, clean look, which which designers often put in in the concept. Oh, us? Yeah, right, exactly, right? Because that completely clean look looks really cool, but it's a lot more work for the carpenters, right? And it's a lot more
1: expensive.
0: And it's a lot more expensive. You can actually take the beam and push it up into your attic, and then you can hang your ceiling joists off of the beam, Uh, meaning using metal joist hangers to connect the ceiling joists and the side of the beam together, right? And then you can create a completely flush ceiling. That beam is the walls out of your way, the beams out of your way. That, is, that does raise the level of complexity a little bit because you also do not have to contend with any electrical that's in the way uh, or potentially not, like unlikely plumbing, maybe a vent line. Uh, as well as ductwork, if you're pushing up into uh, into the the attic. So there's some variations on it, um, and uh, and there's a bunch. So the Journal of Lake Construction, by the way, Journal of Lake Construction has access for videos and all this kind of stuff. There's a also bunch of
1: good stuff. if you can't sleep at night because it will put you right out. <laughs> well, it will put you out of a Boring publication it. Right. on earth. From so, a designer's perspective, from a carpenter's, it's like
0: ooh, Christmas right. candy. Yeah. Oh. And, well, and and then the last thing, the last piece of it to consider is if you're. Um, comfortable and competent with carpentry, but as I've described this, this is feeling a little too much, you could actually just subcontract out the beam work to a local contractor. Who mm-hmm. knows what they're doing, right? You could do a bunch of the rest of your work yourself, but if you felt like you're getting in too deep, which by the way, it, it's, you know, it, like I said, it's really not rocket science. You've got, um, you've got some basic information you need to get clarity on, and uh, and then there's a bunch but of We online. also
1: have no idea if William's going to do this work himself. He just wants to know, like, is it possible,
0: right? Uh, he didn't well, say
1: anywhere in here, like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this myself. He just said, I want to know what's involved, which you well, very adequately it, it, Except
0: it said, I know it's not something to take lightly, and I'd rather be overprepared than under. I kind of infer- Maybe I wrongly inferred. So, William, I apologize. If I wrongly inferred you weren't thinking about doing this yourself, then I went on and, and babbled incessantly for no reason.
1: Yeah. Well, if you're not doing it yourself, William, <laughs> it's a no-brainer. You can definitely do it. You just, you just need write somebody a check. Qualified. <laughs> you just have to write a check, right. and it's easy.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> so if I overexplained, uh, by gods, uh, but, uh, but uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to move on. But anyway, that's that's my little dissertation on uh, on bearing wall removal. Hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for uh, sending in the uh, the, the question.
1: Right.
0: Um,
1: you can read the next
0: one. All right, well, let's see if it could be one that you can actually overexplain. Oh, that'd be nice. Uh, hey, Dave and Brenda, or just I'm sorry. Hey, Dave. Hey, Brenda. I absolutely love your show. Obviously. Already exhibiting good taste in the first sentence. Uh, I'm in Chicago, and I live in a small apartment with an even smaller kitchen. I'm not super handy, but I want to make some changes that won't break the bank. So here's my question. Can you suggest some budget-friendly kitchen upgrades that don't require a contractor? Thanks a bunch. Keep up the great work. Emily.
1: Emily. Emily. This is so in my wheelhouse. I'm so excited about this. Question.
0: I'm going to just kind of curl up and take a nap now. I think that would be good right. because it's
1: whatever I say is going to be really boring to you. And that's OK. But Emily, I just helped my daughter move into her apartment in a town next to us. And, you know, she's on a real budget because I'm done paying for things. And so she was trying to figure out how to make this kitchen, which was not particularly well designed and small and had bad storage work for her. And because... I do what I do, and she actually does what she does too. It's the same thing. Um, we we were both looking like, okay, how can we make this better and not spend a lot of money?
0: So, or actually, not even make fit you because it's an apartment. We can't make physical changes.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not like you're going to be ripping out cabinets and replacing them. So, so here's some great resources for you to make small changes to your kitchen, but that will make a huge difference. Um, so, there is a website that I like for resources called Revishelf.com. So R-E-V-A-S-H-E-L-F.com. And that website is nothing but just cabinet inserts for like, you know, rollouts and utensil dividers and spice drawers and all kinds of things that are very easy to install. You can either buy them directly through Revishelf, but you can also buy them on Amazon. So, um, And there are other manufacturers that do knockoffs of of this stuff that are even less expensive, but Revishelf shelf is a good place to start because they have a whole host of options for you. So it's a good place to do Rev. It's a a good place to do, um, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Accessories? That, but also research. The word I was looking for was research. (laughs) Okay. So... (laughs) (laughs) my brain brain just fried out exactly so it's a great place to do research to find out what kinds of things are available and then if you find something that you think is going to work for you then i would just do a general search for like you know 24 inch uh pots and pans pull out you know that kind of thing so those things you can actually install in the cabinets pretty easily um if as long as you're not making too much of an investment you may just leave them there so, in other words, if you made any any holes in the cabinets, and you feel like, oh, I I can't I can't take this out, and then I have to repair the damage when I move out. Well, you probably... I don't I don't
0: get the impression this is a rental. I get the impression that this is this is Emily's home, and she wants to do some upgrades. Oh, that it says are... live
1: in a small apartment with an even smaller... Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Oh, God, oh yeah, you don't you're read right. These things. No, yeah, I did. You're right. Sorry. You got to read for bad. comprehension. My son. Yeah. <laughs> Get Can that. Right. Right. Anyway. Oh will forget. So... <laughs>
1: So it is an apartment. If it's a condo and you own it, great, no problem. But if you're renting it, um, that's the pe- thing people get concerned about is like, oh, if I make any damage, I'm going to have to pay for it. If you do something to improve the kitchen and you leave it there when you move out, then nobody's going to give you grief about that. Um, so well,
0: so be careful about that because one person's impression of improvement and another is not necessarily the same. The landlord may have a different view, right? That's true. So,
1: But if you, if you screw something into the base of the cabinet, you can always putty it and... and ping over it and it'll be a
0: non-issue. So. And mo- most of these accessories are also very low skill installation yeah. accessories. They're, they're, you know, basic assembly and basic installation usually requiring a few screws.
1: Yep. You need like a screwdriver. And so and the other thing you can get is um, just clever things. Like if you have some drawers and you just need some dividers, that kind of thing. There are ones that you can get that you can, that you can cut even with a utility knife right. um, to fit exactly and you just have better storage all the way around. One thing I always recommend um, in a kitchen, especially with base cabinets, or if you have very narrow base cabinets, if you can get some tray dividers in there. Um, so tray dividers are like the name implies is for storing trees, but it's also for storing anything that you can store vertically. So baking pans, um, mm-hmm. broiler pan, uh, frying pans, anything that's like, uh, two to three inches, uh, deep or less can be stored on its side as opposed to on its base. And that means the, the advantage to that is that you don't, you're not piling things up on top of each other, right? Like if you have a baking sheet, it's, it's better to store it, uh, vertically so that you can see everything that you got and just pull it out with one touch as opposed to having like a deep pile of things. Um, so the same thing is true, like I said, of baking pans. You can stir, store anything vertically. So there are great tray dividers, just metal ones, again, requires like has two screws in it to screw it to the base of a cabinet. Or if you're, again, concerned about damaging um, the cabinets, you can get a piece of plywood, screw it to a piece of plywood, put the piece of plywood in the in the cabinet. And that way you can store a lot more in, in a lot of open space so a lot of a lot of kitchen cabinets have like open bases that just this door and there's just this big open storage space which is just terrible like you're climbing on your hands and knees all the time trying to pull stuff out so I really recommend putting in um, rollout shelves Um, and again they make them in metal they're pretty easy to install not a big deal just did it in my daughter's apartment last week and actually I made my husband do it because I was going
0: to say easy with the just did it (laughs) yeah I just did it
1: (laughs) yeah and that, for instance, like a rollout like that costs sixty dollars. It's not. It's not a big expense. Tray dividers are like ten.
0: Yeah. So and and, and to put it in perspective, in terms of the work, if you're even marginally handy, it's a twenty-minute thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you and if you have trouble with instructions like I do, then you just give it to somebody who's good at
0: it. Like my, <laughs> right? read the yes. <laughs> <laughs> i should instructions. Yes. For comprehension. I can read
1: you. questions for comprehension, right. but instructions right. are are not so good. I'm really good with IKEA furniture, though. Um,
0: where there's just pictures. Right.
1: So so <laughs> that's a good place to start. And also, if you just did a search, like a Google search on like, you know, uh, kitchen cabinet uh, hacks... Right? you're gonna come up with all kinds of things to, to make your kitchen a little bit better. There's a lot of products out there that are short money that can make storage in your kitchen a lot better.
0: Yeah, and as another thing to consider, again, a short money solution, like in our daughter's space, she actually had a half wall in her kitchen, She had very little countertop space, but it had a half wall in her kitchen. And so she went out and bought a butcher block top, which I then cut to fit. And I created, like a, a, I created essentially a bracket that could slip over the top of the wall required no screws or no damage to the wall. And she could then set her butcher block counter on top of that plywood bracket that I made for lack of a better term. And she now has substantially more storage space. Yeah, that doesn't work for everybody. right? Yeah. No, in her case, she's got a half wall that makes that work, but you could also make that, you know, there are a lot of those sort of cute little rolling, uh, you know, butcher block, uh, tops that are butcher block cabinets that that can provide you extra counter space Mm -hmm. and extra storage space that are relatively inexpensive and easily accessible and can you generally can incorporate into a kitchen right
1: the other thing you can look at too is um under cabinet lighting a lot of kitchens don't have any have very good lighting at all and there are now rechargeable led uh under cabinet lights you can get Um, some of them are motion sensitive and you can just you know Plug them in with your with your charger when you need to recharge them, but it gives you a better working space so you can see. So that's helpful. Yeah, and
0: that's again, actually one of those things I think that can be a pretty significant. Like most people don't necessarily appreciate it until they actually get the light, and they're like, oh, holy cow, oh, this I can is see things. way nicer to work. Right, right, right,
1: exactly. So there's a few ideas. Uh, keep doing your research. Keep Googling. I'm sure you can find some great ideas, but that's a good place to start.
0: And Emily, thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your question.
1: Yep. So I'll read the last one.
0: All right, here we go. I want you to listen carefully. For comprehension. Yes. Listening for comprehension. Gotcha.
1: Uh, Hi, I'm down here in Miami, Florida, and I've got this small bathroom that I'm looking to freshen up. It gets pretty humid down here, as you can imagine. So I was wondering if you guys have any tips on what I need to consider when tackling a bathroom remodel in a high humidity area. Thanks.
0: Andrew. Yeah. All right. We actually have a Florida connection now, so we can relate we to the humidity. Too.
1: We have a son who's in Tampa yep. going to college. Yep. He's already had to be evacuated for campus, <laughs> So That
0: was like, super exciting. But on literally the first day of class, yeah. literally the first yeah. day of class, yeah. they evacuated like, the campus. Oh, I hope
1: you're enjoying it.
0: Yep. yep. Le- move away. And it has, uh, It's a long way away from, uh, from home for us to help to figure yeah, that out. But So
1: high humidity environment. First of all, um, I'm assuming that you're living in Florida. You have an air-conditioned home as well so that's taking out the humidity to begin with but often and this is the issue with bathrooms you create a lot of humidity in your bathroom right so what you really need is ventilation you need to get that humidity outside of the bathroom and out into the outside air as opposed to staying inside so now on the other hand if you don't use your your air conditioning and just the humidity comes in regardless then then you have another problem
0: but that's well except for the fact in the bathroom you're actually going to generate
1: even more humidity
0: humidity, right right. so you've got this concentrated location independent of air conditioning right uh that's high humidity just by use right right
1: so really the biggest issue that you need to contend with is just adequate ventilation so we've talked about this a little bit before um i think but you know the kind of humidity that you generate in a bathroom can be really just disastrous for finishes so if stuff doesn't dry out pretty quickly after you use it like you take a long shower right everything steams up there's water rolling down your mirror if you don't get that dried out pretty quickly what happens is that water stays there. Everything mildews, right? Your towels smell bad. You start to get mildew on your ceiling. You get a lot more mildew, right? For instance, if you have a tile shower, those grout lines get covered in mildew, right? It's just, it requires a lot more cleaning. Um, and it's just, it gets, it gets grosser faster and it wears on finishes really, really quickly. Bruce. So the most important thing is a really good vent fan and one that you use all the time.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. That side of it. Two two things there, right? So one, um, in general, although there are parameters that are, are recommended, you can find those online based on your bathroom size, I prefer to err on more is better. Right? More is definitely and I, I appreciate better. the fact that it's a very guy thing to say, but the reality is in ventilation... I like to move move more air than less. Even so, so consequently, if you do the research and you find out that oh, 80 cubic feet per minute or CFM is how they rate the fans um, is adequate for my size bath, I'd bump that up. Go one twenty. Go on a you know it, it, there there is not from my perspective there's not a downside to creating that that higher level of air movement. Right. That's number one. Number two is make sure that when that bathroom fan gets vented to the exterior. That it's actually getting vent. First of all, it's actually happening to the exterior. Uh, 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 there are tons of lazy contractors who will just throw a hose up in the attic yeah. uh, after they install the vent fan, right. and it just blows you made it up in the attic, and, and then, then that creates just a whole other problem, problem right? up there. Right. Um, and so make sure it gets to the outside, in, either going up through the roof or going out through a f- wall through right. through an end wall. If you have it in your house, uh, you generally don't want to vent it through the soffit, uh, mm-hmm. meaning the overhang that's ventilated, right, because if you vent it through the soffit and it's blowing moist air out there, the natural process of your vented soffit is to pull that back up into the attic uh, as part of what happens to keep your attic cool is this sort of movement of air that happens um, in, in your home. So better to have it vented somewhere where it's not gonna get pulled back up into the attic uh, during the during the actual normal venting process of the roof. So those are two things. Um, the last thing to consider is Uh, We, more and more, we have been encouraging clients to put in motion sensitive switches Mm -hmm. uh, that are also preset with a timer. So it becomes, and and I appreciate the fact that that every time you walk in the bathroom, you don't need ventilation. I I, I get that. However, many times you walk in the bathroom, you may need ventilation either for moisture or for odor. Um, And so if you have it on a motion switch then uh, it comes on and if you put in a good quality fan it's not obnoxiously loud or problematic it comes on you can set the duration for its run time 10 minutes 15 minutes whatever you choose uh, and then it goes off when you're when you are, it goes off on its own you don't have to think about it right those are what I believe is kind of the most successful situations because you're not reliant upon let's say you have kids you're not reliant upon your kids actually remembering to turn the fan on before the shower which they never do um, or Expecting someone to turn it off, uh, you know, after the shower, which they also don't do, which and so you, do, right. you then walk by the bathroom three hours later, and the fan's still running, right? Mm-hmm. So the the motion switch with a timer built in is they're certainly more expensive than just a regular uh, toggle switch, um, but they give you a bunch of benefit. I think that has good payoff.
1: Yeah. Well, and so the other thing to think about, and people were like, oh, I hate the sound of the fans. They're like, you know, that that was a bad. What was
0: that situation. like? I'm not doing it again.
1: <laughs> anyway, so they're very loud. And that's that's a negative, right? <laughs> people don't turn on the fan because they don't like the sound of them. Now, when ventilation fans started going in and became code, um, two things were happening. One, they hadn't figured out the technology to keep the fans quiet. So they were loud. Um, and two, they didn't figure out the how to make a fan move enough air, right, CFMs, right? And so they're rated by cubic feet per minute of air that they moved. So when they started making these fans, they were like 50 CFM, most like 80 CFM. And so it took a while to clear a room. And in addition to that, they were really loud. So a fan should be good enough that if you take a shower, you actually will step out of the shower and not everything will be fogged up in the first place. Yeah.
0: And so while we're on that, too, so what, you're talking about a second variable to think about when you're buying that fan, which is called Sons, Right. S-O-N-E. Um, and sewn is just a sound rating, mm-hmm. uh, and the lower the sone, the quieter the fan. The higher the sone, right. the louder the fan. You can buy low sewn fans right. um, that will still move a bunch of air. They cost a little more money, um, but they're totally gets, worth the investment. But yeah, they,
1: so and when we're talking about the difference, like if you go to Home Depot and you look at you look at the uh, fans, usually bathroom fans are rated anywhere between like fifty and maybe one hundred and fifty cfm. So the higher you go, the better off you're gonna be. I recommend at least 110. But the second thing you want is a low sewn fan. So there's a few different brands. I think um Newtone makes one called the Quiet One. And it has it the, the Panasonic. sound on the Petis. Yeah, um yeah. it has a sewn rating of one, and some of them are actually as low as 0.3 songs. But like for instance, the old fans were like four zones, five zones, which is roughly the sound of being in a stadium, no. you know, while the, <laughs> no, the crowd goes, no, true. I'm serious. Like this is really? how they rate it. Like, yeah. Okay. Or, or, you know, three zones is having a really loud TV on in your room, that kind of thing. So they're very noisy. So you do want one that's somewhere between less than a zone and a zone and a half at the most, because then it won't be obnoxious when you turn it on, you will hear it. Um, but for instance, like a, a, son, less than a, less than one, is about the sound of um, your refrigerator compressor, right? Yeah. It's a very, it's a background noise. It's not going to be obnoxious to you, and therefore, when it goes on on that timer, you're not going to be like, oh, I can't stand listening to this. I want to turn it off. It's really just background noise, and that's what you want. It, they are more expensive, like like an inexpensive um, 50 cfm, you know, three zone, four zone fan. It's going to be like less than fifty dollars, twenty five dollars. They're cheap for a reason. They suck, So, but not enough.
0: And, and so
1: what you really want, right, what you really want is a one-zone fan that's going like at least 110 CFM. They're going to be $150. Make the investment, and it really pays off.
0: Yeah, and yeah. well, the last piece of this before we go too far down the road, too much further down this road is um i really love what they call remote fans Mm -hmm. um and so the fans we've been talking about are typically the kind that are mounted directly into the ceiling and often
1: have a light in them they
0: have a light in them where they just have a trim Mm -hmm. and and they're mounted to the framing above the ceiling uh and secured and vented outside uh because of that, even the low, even the quieter ones, you still, there's still a motor over your head and they mm-hmm. still move air. So you hear, you hear them more. If you use a remote fan, the remote fan actually gets mounted up into the attic. And the only thing that's actually in contact with the ceiling is a duct that connects the fan to the actual register that's moving the air. So those are probably the most expensive, but far and away, not only can they move the most air. Yeah, like over 300. Yeah, they're also super quiet, right? Right. You don't hear them at all. Right. And the last piece to that conversation is you need to make sure that, um, and I've seen this happen uh, over and over again, where new fans go in and the the problem doesn't get solved. And often if that's the case, it's because the door that you enter use to enter the bathroom is mm-hmm. cut too close to the floor. So you need to make sure that your door is undercut enough, meaning that there's a gap between the bottom of the door and the threshold or the bottom of the door and the floor sufficient so that as your fan is trying to move air, it's actually got a place to get pull air from. Because yeah. if it's just otherwise you end air, up
1: having a vacuum in your eyes. Exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. Just exactly. Basically. So all right. Um, so do you think that uh, you think that got it for, uh, for I think Ant?
1: it is. And you, you did a very good job reading for Comprehension.
0: All right. I listened for Comprehension. because you read that one. That's a good point. Um, but, uh, you know, it's am uh, more than happy to help you remember things. Um, <laughs> and so, Andrew, thank you very much for, uh, for your question. We greatly appreciate it. And hopefully that helped.
1: Yes. All right. So thanks for joining us with your questions. Please keep them coming. We enjoy hearing from you. And this has been another episode of Renovation Made
0: Right. I am Brenda Bryan. And I'm Dave Bryan. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening. Be
1: sure to check out the show notes on our website, renovationmaderight.com, and follow us on social media at Renovation Made right. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you like the show, leave us a review.